following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. So we're in a series that we're doing at the moment. If you're just joining us today, we're in a a series, uh, a preaching series, through the book of 2 Corinthians, uh, which is a book in the Bible. It's actually a letter. It's written by a guy named Paul uh, around the middle of the first century to a group of Christians in a city called Corinth. The city's still there today. It's been destroyed and rebuilt a few times, but Corinth is still there. And so it's a real letter. And sometimes you can kind of just get this idea, you know, the Bible's a bit of a fairy tale. But the Bible, in fact, is not just one book. It's a library of books and uh, all sorts of different genres, different types of literature in there. And the book that we're looking at this year is a letter. It, it really was a letter written uh, to a real group of people in the first century. So we're working our way through this letter over the course of the year, and this morning we're in chapter 7. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, uh, go ahead and open it up. If you've got a Bible app on your phone or your device, you can open that up. Otherwise, the words are on the screen, so don't worry. We've tipped over the halfway mark now in Second Corinthians, and today we hit a passage in chapter 7, and I'm going to read from verse 2 of Second Corinthians 7 down through the end of the chapter. This is Paul writing. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I have taken great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I did not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, What indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was, because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you was all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. One of the words that's often used to describe our modern Western culture is the word therapeutic. 
We live in a therapeutic culture. And what that means is that we live in a culture where we really prize emotional well-being and we prize happiness and we prize good feelings, good energy, good vibes above just about everything else. We tend to be a highly emotive culture, place a lot of emphasis on our emotions, and we have to feel good. We've got to feel good about our lives. We've got to feel good about my situation. Got to feel good about the future. Got to have the good vibes going on. We, we, we go to a lot of effort to put aside the negative feelings, reject the negative feelings, and focus on good feelings. And there are whole industries that have grown up around this over the last few decades. Uh, You just need to go to the self-help section of the local bookstore and you can see all these books, you know, 10 Steps to Personal Happiness and 5 Steps to Inner Peace and Emotional Well-Being. And these are big values. You can talk to any number of therapists about how to achieve emotional well-being and inner peace and personal happiness and good energy flow and all these things, all kinds of techniques you can engage in physical techniques and natural techniques and relaxation techniques and all of these different things, all designed to bring us personal happiness, all designed to help us feel good about our lives. And nothing wrong with feeling good about our lives, of course. And we just assume this is normal. This is just the, the, the culture, the emotional culture that we're living in. But in fact, this is quite unique. Historically, our culture is quite unique in our obsession with emotional well-being and personal happiness. And often what happens with these things is you have cultural phenomena, cultural trends like this, and they end up affecting the way that we see issues of faith and issues of God. And this has happened with our therapeutic culture. Uh, There was a book that was published a few years ago. These researchers, these sociologists in America, surveyed thousands of American teenagers on what they thought about God, what their views were of God, those of them that believed in God. And they compiled all this data from all the research they'd done with these teenagers. They wrote a book about it, and they came up with three words to describe the views these teenagers had of God. These aren't necessarily the words the teenagers themselves used, but this was the survey being compiled and summarized. And one of the words was therapeutic, to describe the way that American teenagers, who are now American young adults, uh, see God. And this would be typical, I think, of, of millennials in the West. They see God largely in therapeutic terms. In other words, God's purpose, God's job is to make me happy. God's job is to enhance my personal well-being and give me this emotional happiness. And it makes sense because in a therapeutic culture where we're all about emotional well-being, what would be the role of God in such a culture? It would be to enhance my personal well-being and give me good feelings, good energy flow and good vibes. This is basically how people have come to see God. Now, when you take all of that, you take our therapeutic culture and this therapeutic view of God that we have, and you read this passage against the backdrop of our therapeutic culture, it really is quite jarring. Because what Paul is talking about in this passage is the idea of sorrow. And that's difficult to hear in a therapeutic culture. But he keeps using, that's his theme, that's his key word in this passage. He uses the word sorrow seven times. As he goes through this chapter, he keeps coming back to it again and again, the idea of sorrow. And he's not talking about sorrow in a negative sense, as if it's some negative emotion that needs to be put aside. He's talking about sorrow in a positive way. There is a kind of sorrow that needs to be embraced. There is a kind of sorrow that we need to immerse our lives in that's actually a healthy thing. That sounds very jarring against the backdrop of a therapeutic culture. But what it tells us, I think, is that maybe our culture is missing something. Maybe in this relentless quest that we have for emotional well-being, we are missing something. That there is somehow a kind of sorrow that is actually very good and healthy for our soul. And so it's this idea of sorrow. Paul calls it godly sorrow. 
that I want to look at and explore and unpack in this passage. And that may sound like it is going to be a real downer of a sermon. I hope that's not the case. Because I think if you, if you follow the trail of what Paul is saying here, this idea of sorrow actually leads you to a deeper place. It leads you to a, a more healthy, a, a place of greater emotional richness than if we just pursue the path of happiness and good feelings and emotional well-being. So, a little bit of context just to understand this chapter here because we're sort of getting thrown into a story and you might have had that sense of what's happening here and who's Titus and what's all this about. So Paul's picking up a story that he started telling back in chapter 2 of this book. He has sent his colleague Titus, Titus was one of his closest colleagues, he'd sent Titus off with a letter that he had written to the Corinthian church. This is a previous letter, previous to 2 Corinthians. And it was a pretty severe letter that Paul had written to this church, to this congregation because they had really messed up and they'd really broken their relationship with Paul. Paul had had this experience when he visited Corinth where someone in the church had really had a go at him. Uh, not physically, but had, had verbally or somehow damaged his reputation, damaged his credibility, really attacked Paul quite viciously and quite personally. And so Paul fires off a letter to the church in response to that, calling them to account because the church stood by and did nothing while all that was going on. While this guy was attacking Paul, the church just... They were complicit in it. They may have even given support to the offender. So Paul writes them a pretty fiery letter and challenges them and confronts them about this. And he sends that off with Titus. The problem is now Paul's been waiting for Titus to return so he can hear what's happened. But Titus doesn't come back. Titus doesn't make the rendezvous point. So Paul started to get worried. Paul's worrying about Corinth. He's probably starting to worry about Titus, whether he's been lynch mobbed by the church when he, received, when he gave this letter. But finally, Paul is reunited with Titus, and that's what he picks up here in chapter 7. He's overjoyed, finally. Titus returns, and he brings the good news that the Corinthian church have responded well. They've responded positively. They've seen the error of their ways. They've heard Paul. They've recognized they didn't do very well in that situation. They should have done more. They should have supported Paul. They should have disciplined this other guy. And they recognize that they're humble enough to own up to it. And they take some steps to remedy it. They do take some action against the offender. And they express through Titus their desire to be reconciled to Paul. So Paul's overjoyed. He's absolutely stoked. There's a lot of other stuff going on in his relationship with the Corinthians. A lot of other drama going on. But on this particular issue, he's just really encouraged. They've done the right thing. They've been humble. They've been mature. They've been wise. And he really encourages them for it. And that's where you get this idea of sorrow, godly sorrow. He uses that word to name the experience that the Corinthians have gone through in getting to this point, in humbling themselves, recognizing they had done wrong, and now seeking reconciliation with Paul. So the first time that he uses the word is in verse 8. He says, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, you see Paul's a little bit torn here, I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while, yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. So we need to understand that when Paul's talking about sorrow here, he's talking about quite a specific kind of sorrow. This is not the same thing as sadness. It's not just being a sad person. This kind of sorrow, it's not the same thing as negative self-esteem. It's not just beating ourselves up. It's not the same thing as grief. It's not the pain and the hurt of someone losing someone, losing something. It's not any of those things. It's a specific kind of sorrow. The closest word that I think we could get to this would be remorse. It's the sense of personal sorrow, personal remorse, because of stuff in our lives that is not as it should be. Stuff in our lives that's not healthy. This kind of sorrow is the ability to do healthy self-examination, 
and to be a self-aware enough person to look inside our own life and recognize things that are not healthy, recognize ways of speaking that are not healthy, ways of thinking that are not healthy, ways of acting that are not healthy, habits that are destructive to ourselves, destructive towards other people, ultimately dishonoring to God. And that is all what the Bible calls sin, doing things that are ultimately displeasing to God, falling short of who God has made us to be in the way that we are to bear His image. That's sin. And sorrow is looking at ourselves and coming face to face with our own sin before God and allowing that to affect us. Actually allowing that to affect us. Actually allowing ourselves to feel the weight of our own sin before God. It's not fun to talk about in a therapeutic culture, is it? But this is what the scripture calls us to. To actually allow ourselves to grieve and to mourn over the, over the condition of our heart before God. Not just to brush off sin and say, well, that doesn't matter. Not just to say, well, it's, that's, just, that's just me and that's just who I am or I'm only human or any of those other excuses, but to say, I, I'm truly a broken person and to allow ourselves to feel the heaviness of that before a holy God. That's sorrow. That's grieving over our sin. It's the same thing that Jesus talked about in the Beatitudes, the second Beatitude. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Same idea. What's Jesus saying by that? Not just blessed are the sad people, not just blessed are the ones who go to funerals. He's saying blessed are those who mourn over their sin. Who can see their own selfishness and it really grieves them. Who can see their own brokenness and they feel the weight of their own sin before God. Jesus' brother James put it in even stronger language in the book of James. He says, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. That's not really, I don't imagine any of you have got that verse framed in your living room at home. You know, that's nobody's favorite verse. That's no one's, hey, that, that's my life verse I'm living by, grieve, mourn, and wail. You know, we're probably not going to sing a worship song with those words. And you imagine Mark standing up this morning, hey, everyone, let's change our laughter to mourning. Let's change our joy to gloom. You know, that's not going to pick anyone up, is it? That's not fun. It doesn't feel good. But this is part of the Christian faith. This is part of the call of the gospel, is to look at our lives and be affected by our sin and feel it, even at an emotional level. The reason we have such a hard time with that is because we live in this culture of emotional well-being, but what we've got to recognize is that God's priority is not our emotional well-being. It is our spiritual well-being. And that is a much deeper and much more important reality. Your emotions, realistically, are very surface level. They're at the surface of your being. They're like the waves on the top of the ocean. But your spiritual well-being are the deep ocean currents that are going on underneath. That's the condition of your soul before God, the deepest, truest, core part of you. That's what God cares about the most. And there are times when God wants us to disrupt our emotional well-being in order to enhance our spiritual well-being. There are times when we need to disturb our emotional well-being and be brought to a place of godly sorrow in order to really grow deeper in our soul and in the depth of our experience of God's love. I experienced this most profoundly in my life when I was going through seminary in the States. <clears throat> and one of the things, uh, we had a lecturer and he asked us to do this exercise on our own, in our own time, to write a letter of confession to God. 
And he said, you can, whatever you want, you can confess one particular thing that you're aware of about your life, or you can just do a general kind of thing. And so I, I sat by myself in our little apartment in Cincinnati and started writing. And, and from memory, it was just kind of a stream of consciousness thing for me. Um, there are plenty of things I could have confessed, but I just kind of started writing, and it all just came out, all this stuff, and it was just this letter of just, here, this is who I am, and here's just my brokenness, my woundedness, my, the flaws in my life before God. And it was, it was the time in my life when I look back and, and, and realize that I most deeply felt my own sin. And in the course of writing that letter, it's like God enabled me to see my sin from his perspective. Not just my shallow little brush it off perspective, but his perspective. And I just remember feeling the weight of it. Just feeling the heaviness of, man, this sin really grieves God. This is not trivial. Even the smaller, this, is not tr- this isn't offense to God. This is a personal offense to God. And I remember just having that heaviness. But it was such a healthy thing. It wasn't a condemning thing. This is what I want you to see. It's not, it wasn't a condemning thing that led me then down into despair. It was so cleansing. It was therapeutic in the best sense of the word. It was cleansing, and it brought me through that experience into into hope, into something deeper. And this is the thing, because I know how easy it is. We're talking about godly sorrow. We're talking about mourning and grieving over our sin. And some of you are already prone to feel pretty bad about yourselves. Some of you, your self-esteem is already through the floor. You, You feel bad about yourself. You're down on life. You're down on yourself. You're down on God. You're down on everything. And you hear something like this. Oh, now I'm just supposed to grieve over my sin. And that's just enough to tip you over the edge. And you just wallow in despair and utter hopelessness. And it just sounds like all this is just a path to self-hatred and self-loathing and self-condemnation and self-rejection. And it's not that. That is never where the message of the Bible leads. That is never where the story of God leads. That's not where godly sorrow leads. And if it is, that's, it's not the kind of sorrow that Paul's talking about. And this is so critical. He makes a critical distinction in this passage. Just have a look at verse 10. If you've got the Bible open, just look down at the text there in verse 10. Here's the key distinction here. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. <clears throat> now, that's a really important distinction. It's not easy to grasp on the surface of it. What is the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow? I think the easiest way to see this distinction is to see it played out in the lives of two people. So let me just give you two examples of this from the life of two guys that knew Jesus. The first one's Judas. When you think about worldly sorrow, think about Judas. Judas was one of Jesus' inner circle, one of the twelve, one of the disciples, followed him closely for three years through his ministry time. And then he betrayed Jesus. He sold him out for 30 pieces of silver, told the Jewish authorities how they could arrest Jesus, led to his trial and ultimately to his execution. And there's an interesting little text in Matthew 27 which talks about Judas after he's done this, after he's sold Jesus out. In Matthew 27, verse 3, when Judas, who had betrayed him, that's Jesus, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. So he felt something. He wasn't cavalier, but afterwards he realized, he recognized what he had done, and he was filled. He, he experienced a kind of a sorrow. He, he experienced a grief, a deep, deep sense of regret and remorse. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver, and he tried to get out of it, and he tried to seek some redemption for himself, but the chief priests completely rejected that. And so, verse 5, Judas threw the money into the temple and left, then he went away and hanged himself. See, this is 
worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is feeling remorse without hope. It's feeling remorse. See, don't, don't think, oh, worldly sorrow that doesn't care, but godly sorrow cares. No, worldly sorrow, you still feel the weight of the stuff in your life that's not right, but you feel it without any sense of hope. There's no light in the darkness. There's no hope in the midst of the bleakness. It's just this weight. It's just this heaviness. And it leads to a kind of a death. Certainly not always suicide. It literally, in Judas' case, that's what's happened. But Paul says godly, uh, worldly sorrow brings death. He's talking about a kind of a death that can happen on the inside. The dying of our soul. That's what happens. When you experience remorse, you feel bad about yourself. You just realize, man, I'm a broken, stuffed up person. But you feel that without any sense of hope then you, you just, you're just left in that place. And there's a kind of a dying of your soul that happens because you can't see any possible way out of it. That's the path to self-pity, self-loathing, self-rejection, self-condemnation. That's worldly sorrow. That's Judas. But there is another kind of sorrow. There is what Paul describes as godly sorrow. And we see godly sorrow reflected in the life of Peter. Just before that passage in Matthew 27 talks about Judas, there is the passage on Peter. Peter was also one of Jesus' closest disciples. He was part of the inner circle. He was one of the twelve. He had walked with Jesus. He had apprenticed with Jesus for three years. And just like Judas, Peter betrayed Jesus in a very different way. But he too sold Jesus out in another kind of way. When Jesus was on trial for his life, Peter disowned any knowledge of him whatsoever. Three times. This guy that he had walked with, his master, his rabbi, his lord, he disavowed any knowledge of Jesus three times in Jesus' greatest hour of need. And then the Bible says Peter went outside. He heard the rooster crow just as Jesus predicted. And Peter went outside and the text says he wept bitterly. There's a picture of sorrow. He wept bitterly. Judas felt great remorse. Peter wept bitterly. Now at that point, both men were the same. At that point, both men were in the same boat. They felt this deep remorse, this deep regret over what they had done. But the difference is all in how the story ends. For Judas, he went out and hung himself. But Peter stayed with the story. Peter hung in there. He went through the awfulness of watching Jesus be crucified. He went through the next few days and the rumors that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And then a week after Jesus had been resurrected, Jesus appears to Peter up on the shore of Lake Galilee, has breakfast on the beach with him, has some fish. And then Jesus says to Peter, ask him those three famous questions. Do you love me? Ask him three times. Each time Peter gives a positive response. And then Jesus says to Peter these two words that would have just pierced his heart in a beautiful way. He says, follow me. Why would that have been so significant for Peter to hear those two words, follow me? Because they were the first two words Jesus ever spoke to Peter. Years ago, when he first called him as a fisherman and Peter left his nets, what did Jesus say? Follow me. So now on the shore of Galilee again, Jesus turns up again and says, Peter, follow me. What's he saying? He's saying, Peter, I'm giving you a new start. I'm giving you a new beginning. I'm restoring you. I'm taking you right back. As if none of this awfulness had ever happened. I want you to follow me again. I want you to stand up. You're going to be in relationship with me again. He is restoring Peter. He is reconciling Peter to himself. He is reinstating Peter to his role as a leader in this movement that Jesus is birthing. It's a new beginning for Peter. And that is where godly sorrow leads. That's the difference. 
See, both men felt remorse. They felt terrible about what they had done. But ultimately, Peter is able to receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers. That's the difference. Worldly sorrow leads to a kind of a dying of our soul. Godly sorrow, Paul says, brings repentance. That's the word Paul uses for this, repentance. That's a really important word. It gets a lot of bad press, the word repentance. You know, repent, and the guy with the sandwich board sign, repent or burn. You know, we think, oh, this is terrible, awful Christian words. But the word repent or repentance just means to change the mind. It means a turning of the mind that leads to a turning of the life, ultimately. But it starts with the turning of the mind. And that's interesting, isn't it? In a passage full of this emotional language around sorrow and mourning over sin and grieving over sin and all these things we've been talking about, and yet the pivotal turning point is when we change our mind. Not when we change our emotions. Not when we change our feelings. That may or may not come later, but when we change our mind. That's when worldly sorrow turns into godly sorrow. That's when we start seeing light in the midst of the darkness in our soul, is that point of repentance. It means changing our mind. That's exactly what the Corinthians had done in regard to Paul. They changed their mind. They changed their mind about themselves. They realized they were wrong. They changed their mind about Paul. They realized they needed to support him. They changed their mind about the offender. They realized they needed to take action. And this is what repentance means for us, is to change our mind. And it starts by changing our mind about our sin. And it means deciding in that moment, in that time when we are feeling bad, we're feeling weighed down, I'm feeling awful, I'm feeling dark, I'm feeling just, just heavy about the sin in my life, about the stuff in my life. At that moment, what it means is we change our mind about our sin and rather than just carrying it ourselves, we carry it to the cross. We carry it to the cross, so to speak, <clears throat> and we lay it down there before Jesus. And we receive his grace. We lay our sin down and we look at the cross and we see the wonder of what Jesus has done for us there. That he has carried our sin on our behalf. That he's borne all of our mistakes, our past failings, our present failings, our future failings. He's carried all of that himself. He has become the man of sorrows, as we sung about this morning. He becomes the man familiar with suffering. He took our sorrow, in a sense, upon himself. All of our sin. He paid the price for it so that we could be free of it, so we could be forgiven, so we could hear those words Jesus said to Peter, follow me, so we could receive that new start, so we could receive that new beginning, so we could have not just a clean slate, but a new slate completely and be restored and reconciled in relationship with the God who created us and loves us deeply. That's where godly sorrow leads. That's what repentance brings about. You can start to see why sorrow is important, can't you? Why this godly sorrow is important. Not because God wants us to be morbid and wallow in self-pity, but because until you recognize how deep the pit is that you and I are in, you'll never appreciate the hand of rescue that reaches down to pull you out. Until you recognize that you are at absolute rock bottom, you'll never appreciate the rope that comes down to pull you out. This is the problem with our secular culture, is that it cannot recognize its own sinfulness. It cannot see the depravity of its own heart, so it will not recognize its need for a savior. We need to recognize both of these truths, that we are great sinners and that Christ is a great savior. It's only when you realize how dead you are spiritually that you will appreciate the resurrection that comes through Jesus. It's only when we realize and we wrestle with our own brokenness that we will truly appreciate the healing that Christ brings as he comes and puts the broken pieces of our lives back together again. It's only by appreciating the depth of our sin that we will even begin to appreciate the depth of God's grace. 
That's why God wants to bring us to sorrow and grief over our sin, because the path leads to the cross, because the path leads to grace. That's where he wants to take us. That's what repentance brings. Now, in a sense, that's what it means to be a Christian. And those of us that are Christians in the room, that's a process that at some point in our lives we've gone through. We've brought our stuff, we've brought our lives to God, and we've said, God, I'm a messed up person. I need your grace. We've confessed our sin. We have repented. We've changed our mind about our sin. I'm not going to carry it. I'm going to bring it to Jesus. And we've received his forgiveness. That's what happens when you begin the Christian life. That's what happens at the moment a person is saved and comes into a relationship with God. But it's not supposed to stop there. This idea of godly sorrow and repentance is supposed to be a rhythm of our lives. It's supposed to be something that we build into our lives over time so that we grow in our character. Look at what Paul says to the Corinthians in verse 11 about what all this has produced in them. He said, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. These are wonderful qualities. This is the transformation of the character of a church. But it's come about through godly sorrow and it's come about through repentance. As we walk in this pattern of our lives and continually bringing our stuff before God, laying it down, allowing ourselves to feel the weight of it before a holy God, but then receiving God's grace, receiving God's forgiveness afresh. This is one of the key ingredients in our spiritual growth. This is one of the key things that will help you grow in character, grow in conformity to the character of Christ as a pattern, a regular pattern of godly sorrow leading to repentance, leading to transformation in our lives. One writer puts it this way, Repentance is the doorway to the spiritual life, the only way to begin. It is also the path itself, the only way to continue. Anything else is foolishness and self-delusion. Only repentance is both brute honest enough and joyous enough to bring us all the way home. In 1949, there was an extraordinary event that unfolded in a little city called Bavas. It's in northwest Scotland, on the Isle of Lewis. And there were these two elderly women in this little village who were praying in the little cottage they lived in, and they just prayed. They prayed for the village, they prayed for people in the village, that they would come to know God and that God would move in a powerful way in people's lives. One of these elderly women talked to the minister of the local church in Bavas and said, would you be willing to gather the leaders of the church together and pray regularly that we'd really see God move? And just bring that conviction, bring that stirring in people's hearts that God would bring people to himself. And the minister agreed, and so he got the leaders together. And three nights a week, for months, I think about three months, they prayed long into the night, into the early hours of the morning. And one night, as they were praying, one of the young men in the church read out Psalm 24, which is a psalm, we're going to sing a song at the end of the service based on that psalm. It talks about having clean hands and a pure heart before God. And he just called the group of people that were there to repentance. He just said, let's confess our sins before God. Let's be honest about ourselves and let's seek God's forgiveness. Let's seek God's grace afresh in our lives. And so they did. They went through that process of repenting before God and a powerful sense of God's presence swept over the group. They continued praying and repenting till about four in the morning. A couple of weeks later, they turned up at church and the service in this tiny little village was absolutely packed with people. And not just the regular church congregation. Somehow people had come from all over, not only Bavas, but the Isle of Lewis, 
to the service. People had literally come in buses. They'd literally come in vans. And nobody quite knew where from and nobody quite knew why. They hadn't done any particular advertising. There was not a special service of any kind, but people just, they just somehow had a sense that they needed to be here. And the service was overflowing. And as the service continued that morning, there was a powerful move of God's spirit. It was like a spiritual awakening. It was the kind of thing we've been talking about, people just seeing who they were before God and being convicted for the first time People just saw their own sin in the light through God's eyes and they were, just, they were convicted right where they sat. And they were brought to repentance and they were weeping and they were crying out for God's mercy. And multitudes of people were saved. Multitudes of people came to Christ. The service went on all day and it went on through the night. It went on until 4 a.m. the following morning when the minister finally stood up and pronounced the benediction at 4 a.m. Imagine that. You'd love that, wouldn't you? And then the guy leading the service, a guy named Duncan Campbell, <clears throat> as he was leaving the church, hoping to finally go home for a bit of sleep at the end of that, someone met him outside the church and said, look, would you mind just coming into the center of the village to where the police station is? Because there are people there that just don't know what to do. They haven't been at the church service, but they're just somehow they are deeply aware of a need for God and they're in real spiritual distress. Would you mind coming and talking to them? And so rather than going home to sleep, he went into town and he, he just saw this extraordinary sight of people just sitting around these public places, weeping and crying out for God's mercy, not even quite knowing what was happening to them, not even quite knowing, certainly not knowing what they needed to do about that, but just having a deep sense that they needed the mercy of God and crying out. There was a spiritual awakening that was going on in Bavas. And so Duncan Campbell ministered to these people, prayed with these people, told these people how they could be reconciled with God and be forgiven, and they were. And this revival continued for months and months across the Isle of Lewis in these small little villages. Church services were held through the days and through the nights, and multitudes of people came to faith. And it began with two little old ladies praying in their cottage. And it was fueled by someone calling a group of people to repent calling a group of people to repentance. And so often you can look historically, that was one of the great modern revivals in history, but you can look historically and see that so often repentance precedes revival. See, we want, you know, we want God to do great things and amazing things and work in our city and move in our city and convict people's hearts. You know when God starts to move is when we get on our knees and we get honest about our sin and we have a good hard look at ourselves and we cry out for God's mercy and we receive his grace afresh. And we go through the process of repentance. Time and time again, revival is preceded by repentance. Didn't God say it in the scriptures? He said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. That was a promise to Israel in the Old Testament. But the principle still stands for us today. If we will humble ourselves, if we will be honest about our own sin and feel the weight of it before God, if we will seek God's face, turn from our wicked ways, call upon his name, cry out for his mercy, then he will hear from heaven. He will forgive us. That's a promise. He will forgive us and he will heal us. He will heal our lives. He will heal our church. He will heal our communities. His love will spill over from our lives to affect the lives of people around us. God will do this, but it begins with godly sorrow and it begins with repentance. So as we this morning head towards communion, we're going to take the Lord's Supper in a few minutes, but I want to just lead us through this process. 
I want to lead us through a process of repentance, and I want to just call us gently but lovingly to repent of our sins, to allow the Holy Spirit to shine his spotlight into our hearts and see if there is anything in our lives that we need to allow God to surface and confess and receive his forgiveness for and own up to and allow God to begin to change that area of our lives. I want to do this by leading us in a prayer, and it's a prayer which is a psalm, one of the psalms in the Bible, Psalm 51. The psalm was written by David, King David, and it's a psalm that he wrote after he'd had an affair. Absolute lowest point of David's life. Not only had an affair, but then had the husband or the lady he had the affair with killed, wrecked the lives of numerous people, wrecked his own family. The, the, the history that followed after that is terrible. And David just complete, did so much damage with the sin. And he was the great king of Israel, Israel's greatest monarch. And he just, he just devastated his life and the lives of other people in this sin. And this psalm that I'm going to read is written at the point when David has that spiritual awakening and he recognizes what he's done. And he really comes to terms with it. But as you'll hear and as you'll see, it's not just the sorrow, but then it's the leading through into repentance, the turning of his mind, the turning of his heart, and the fresh receiving of God's grace and forgiveness and mercy. That's the pathway that we've got to walk. So I encourage you, as I, as I read this psalm, to make this a prayer. And it might be the first time you've ever prayed it or had the, the, this, this kind of thing happen at all. You may not be a Christian, that's fine. You can just pray this. Maybe for the first time of you coming honestly before God and having an honest conversation with Him about where you're at in relation to Him. You may be a Christian, and this can for you be a fresh receiving of God's grace. Just a fresh awareness of who you are as a broken person, bringing your sin before God and just allowing Him to wash you clean. So let me lead us in that, and then we're going to move straight into communion as we literally receive Christ's forgiveness and grace afresh at the table. So Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness, even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation 
and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Saviour. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it prosper you, may it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole, then bulls will be offered on your altar. God, keep us in this space where our hearts are open and humble and willing to hear your voice, your voice of conviction and your voice of grace. May we hear both as we share this meal that you've prepared for us. In Christ's name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.